If you would take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 11, and our text this morning will be verses 5 through 6. Last Sunday we focused primarily on verse 5, looking at the incredible life of Enoch and how the Lord had taken him. We looked at how it was that he had walked with the Lord as a preacher of righteousness in the midst of wickedness and that how he lived his life by faith. When we come to verse 6, which is a conclusion to verse 5 this morning, which explains this doctrine of living by faith and is a call for us to also walk by faith, for us to walk with God as Enoch did and as Enoch set that example. And as we look at verse 6, you'll see that there are two absolute statements made. One's negative and then one is positive. And the negative is this, is that it's without faith, it's, a, it's impossible to please God. And that word impossible is that first absolute, that's an absolute statement. It's impossible to please God apart from faith. And then we see another absolute statement in the next clause is for whoever would draw near to God must. This is the necessity. They must believe that he exists and he rewards those who seek him. And so we see those two absolute statements there that form the basis of what we see in verse 6. One negative, one positive. Let us hear... This section, beginning with verse 5. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. This is the word of God. This word of God is instructive for us this morning. The overall context we've seen is the definition of faith that began in verses 1 through 3 with an example of the first example of faith that we have, that we believe that God created the universe. And then we see the first example of faith is that of Abel, in contrast to Cain. And really, all of this, these faithful men that we see through this text are in contrast to the unfaithfulness of Cain. And we're reminded that you have two men that are gathered to worship one is regenerate, one is unregenerate, but they're there doing the same things together. And so the overall context as we see the life of Enoch, as we see the life of Abel, as we'll see of, of Noah, is that in contrast to Cain. Cain had tried to please God of, by his own merits, by his own work, but Abel and Enoch by faith in who God is. And in faith of God's promise, they walked by faith, bringing nothing of their own. And so we come to this very difficult passage, verse 6, that says that we can please God. That's a remarkable statement. How can I please the Lord? Is it even possible for me to, bring, to please the Lord 
who is infinitely good. And I infinitely fall short. Well, first we have to know what the Bible says, and I'm just going to read several passages of Scripture for you. And so don't, don't try to follow along, because I'll be faster than you. Romans 12.1 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Well, that is, pleasing to God, which is your spiritual worship. So we're told that we're supposed to do something that would be acceptable, that would be pleasing to God. Paul goes on in Romans 14, 18, whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable or pleasing to God and approved by men. Again, we see this command and this call that we can be pleasing to God. In 2 Corinthians 5, 9, Paul writes this, so whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. That is, to please the Lord by our life. Ephesians chapter 5, in verse 10, it reads this, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. There are things that I can do that the Lord is pleased. And we see this. Colossians 3.20, children, obey your parents and everything, for this pleases the Lord. There's many other places we could go. I just wanted to set the context that Scripture commands us and says that we can be pleasing to the Lord. So how can I please a God that is holy? How can I please a God that is righteous, that is, that is good, when, when I am not righteous, when I am not good, when I am imperfect? How can I please a perfect God? Well, notice what the text says, and without faith it is impossible to please Him. That word impossible means it's a, there's a lack of ability to do something. The antonym of impossible here is the, opposite, the, the idea of power or strength. Oftentimes that antonym word is that, that idea of the power of the Holy Spirit. And so when we see this word here, impossible, it's saying this is you lack the capacity to do this. That's what it means to be impossible. If I, if I asked you to go and lift a mountain with your strength, you would say, that's impossible. And it is. Why? Because you lack the capacity to lift a mountain with your strength. You don't have it. That's what impossible means. That you, you can't do this. You, it, it's not a possibility. And so what we see is apart from faith, it is impossible to please God or to walk with God. We have to recognize something about this idea of impossibility is that it is impossible for you to save yourself. In fact, when the disciples asked Jesus, who can be saved? Jesus says this with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. You cannot please God apart from faith. And this faith here presupposes that one has a saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we know this is that in terms of our salvation, we cannot be saved apart from faith and faith alone that we contribute nothing to it, but it is faith, that's the thing that we don't contribute any to. 
And if this idea and in the context is with walking with God, and that is that communion with God, it means that I cannot possibly walk with God or have fellowship with God or have communion with God apart from faith. It doesn't exist. Where there is a lack of faith, where there is no faith, there is no fellowship with God. It's impossible, the text says. There is no fellowship with God apart from saving faith, period. I want you to consider some of the implications of this. A common refrain of the prophets was what Isaiah says in Isaiah 1, 11, where he says, what is it? What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs, of goats. When, when you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity in solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feast, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. God says this to those that are gathered to worship Him with prayer, with sacrifice, with ceremony, just as God has prescribed. And God says, here, I hate these. I hate these things. Why? Because they were presented apart from faith. It is impossible to please God without faith. In other words... To summarize what Isaiah said there, or what the Lord says through Isaiah, is we can do all of the religious things just like Cain did. We can pray. We can sing songs. We can attend church. But apart from faith, they mean nothing. You think about this for a second how people rest their assurance in doing these things. They rest their assurance of faith in whether they were affected by something, whether they had some sort of experience. And they base their salvation based on that experience. I listened to a song or we sang a song and it, and it moved me and I had an experience or I heard something and it, and it gave me the goosebumps and I, I had an experience. There's my salvation. A number of years ago, I was listening to John Williams, not the composer, but the classical guitarist, and he was playing... Johann Sebastian Bach's Chacon, Partita Number 2 in D minor. And it's a long song. It's about 14 minutes. 
And typical of Bach's music, it builds to a crescendo. And as I was listening to Williams perform this masterfully, I got goosebumps on my arms because I was drawn into the beautiful music, the harmony, the melody, the flutter of notes at the hands of a capable musician. And I realized there is the manipulative power of music and experience. If I rested my faith on that experience... If I rested my salvation on an experience that I may have, what have I rested my salvation upon? You see, the religious things that we do, they may even create a stir, an emotional pill in us, but that doesn't mean a thing apart from the blood of Christ. In the end, it doesn't matter if a person had a great prayer life or read a Bible often or sang a song a certain way. What matters is whether they rested in the completed work of Christ. And the result of a resting life in Christ is a life of walking in fellowship with God and having a pleasing life in communion with Him. There's something we have to consider about this. If God is pleased through faith and people through faith, what's the implication for those that are lacking faith? Displeasure. You consider how Jesus warns of this, of those that would rest in their works. Jesus says, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? In other words, God, didn't we do all of these things? But they did them without faith. And this is why Jesus will say to them, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. Because they were resting in what they did. They were not resting in the work of Christ. Apart from union with Christ through faith, we have to recognize a simple fact. We are children of wrath. In fact, we are told that this wrath is upon those that reject the Lord Jesus Christ. In John 3.36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. It was there, and it continues to be upon that person. So apart from faith, it's impossible to please God. And apart from faith, it means that you are under the displeasure, or we will use what Scripture says, the wrath, the anger of God. That's a doctrinal point that's being made here in this first clause, this first absolute statement, but we have to take some implications from the text. This is often the source of our divisions and problems that we face in the church, in the visible church. And why is that? Why is that? Because you often have, in, in, in a body of professing believers, you will have a Cain and you will have an Abel. And they're both coming with their sacrifice. They're both coming with their prayer. They're both coming with their song. Except for Cain, 
His works require an endless effort to please God. Those that do not live by faith are continually resting upon what they can do. And they can never rest. They can never rest. But those that are able to rest in the completed work of Christ, like Abel was, like Enoch was, they're able to rest secure in Christ. And what happens? What, are they, what often happens is it happened in the life of Enoch and as it happened in the life of Abel, they draw the anger of the Cains who are working their way to heaven. Why is that? Those that rest in their work inevitably define the quality of their work against others that they're looking at. Those that rest in their works are resting in the quality of what it is that they do. And what happens is that jealousy arises among them, just as with Cain. And let's praise the Lord that we don't see too many killings in the church, as with Cain and Abel. But what do we often see? Gossip. What happens in gossip? Gossip devalues the person and elevates the gossiper, doesn't it? It actually tries to kill that person's reputation. This is why Paul warns against busybodies. You see, the, the, the whole idea that if I can value my Christianity based off how good I am, rather off the completed work of Christ, it will be my life work than always to be elevating myself above others. This is why churches have problems. This is why churches have divisions in them. This is another problem with this too. It causes superstitions in the church. Cain thought that by doing something, he would be saved. He was resting in the act of worship. He was resting in the things they do. It's becoming worshiping the religious things themselves rather than them being an act of thanksgiving to the Lord. Our religious things become the source of our worship rather than Christ. So we have the Lord set up this, Lord's Supper set up this morning. Do we rest in the supper and the act of us doing the supper or do we rest in Christ of which the supper is to represent his death? Do we rest in our baptism rather than resting in Christ, of which our baptism is a symbol of? Do we rest in how we feel, or do we rest in Christ and Him alone? You see, this makes a simple point, is that worshiping apart from faith actually is idolatry. It is worshiping of a false god. And if we think that we're resting in our works to save us, or resting in what it is we do, then we're actually resting in the law. We're resting in the law at that point. Romans 8.8 says this, For those who are in the flesh cannot please God. They cannot do anything to merit their salvation, but God. 
But God is our hope. In Romans chapter 8, verse 3, For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemns sin in the flesh. You see, we cannot earn God's favor. We cannot please God apart from faith because that would be to please God by way of law. And what does the text of Scripture say? For God has done what the law could not do. So why then, with that as a reality, why is it that we could be pleasing to God? Or let me state it another way. If you are in Christ this morning, why are you pleasing to God? If you're in Christ, Scripture says you are pleasing to God. Why then are you pleasing to God? Let me read a couple of passages, or one passage particularly, that might be helpful. The Father says to the Son, this in Matthew chapter 3, verse 17, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. So how can you be pleasing to the Father? If you are in Christ, the Father is well pleased with you as if you had lived the life of the Son. And where the Father tells the Son, I am pleased with you, the Father tells those who are in the Son, I am well pleased with you. This is why we're told in election, in Ephesians 1.6, we're called that we are blessed in the Beloved. That we become beloved children of God. That we are pleasing to God. How? It happens through faith. And so we're called to walk by faith. We're called to walk by God. We're called to live in communion with God, to live our lives fellowshipping with God, to ever have our eyes resting upon Him. But the central fact of the matter is, apart from faith, absolutely impossible to please God. Which brings us to the second absolute statement, and that is this, for whoever would draw near to God must, it is a necessary, must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. That word must means it's, it is necessary. It's just a three-letter Greek word, and oftentimes it's, it's seen as a divine uh, necessary uh, word that has to take place by God's intervention. And without this faith, you are in the realm of the impossible. Now, who's addressed here? It says, whoever would draw near. The King James says, whoever cometh to God. Another translation says, whoever comes near to God. So who is it that, who is this whoever? Who is the whoever that the Bible is speaking of here? We have, to, we have to consider what the whole text of Scripture teaches us. As I have already stated, I've already given you the answer. This presupposes saving faith. This whole entire verse does. This verse is speaking to those that are saved. So those that are pleasing to God draw near to God. No one can come to God apart from 
the grace of faith. That faith is a grace of God. And what does that mean? It doesn't mean that God believes for you, but it does mean that you cannot believe apart from God's grace, that faith is the gift of God, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. That faith itself is a grace of God. Just as Paul says in, in Philippians 1.29, is that it was granted to you to believe. That is, it is granted to you to have faith. This is a gift of God. As, as Luke writes of the history of church in, in the book of Acts, it was granted unto them that they should believe. It was granted unto them the repentance that is of life. And so no one draws near to God apart from the grace of faith, and no one can come to God apart from the calling of the Father. And Jesus says this. Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. So who is the whosoever? all that the Father gives me. And in verse 44 of John 6, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on that last day. This is speaking of the calling of the Father that the Father gives His Son a people to die for. And the Son dies for them. And the Spirit seals them unto eternity. Now who's this whoever draws near to God? Well, one other thing is this, is no one draws near to God apart from the preaching of the gospel. John, Romans chapter 10, verse 14, How will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? It's a tremendous statement in Romans chapter 10, especially after Paul is articulating the doctrine of election, of God's predestination of a people. Then he says this, no one believes apart from preaching. And he goes on to say, in Romans in verse 17, so faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. No one draws near to God apart from hearing the preaching of the gospel. And so while we understand God's election of a people is supernatural, it comes through the very natural means of preaching the gospel. How will they believe unless they hear the gospel? And how will they hear the gospel unless someone sins, is sent to preach the gospel? By the way, that doesn't mean necessarily preaching the gospel in the church. This is speaking of being sent to people to preach the gospel. The church gathers to worship God. The church gathers because if it is impossible to please God apart from faith, it means that the church is the people of God worshiping God. The preaching of the gospel is what takes place outside of the church. That doesn't mean we don't preach the gospel. Of course we preach the gospel. But it just simply means this is talking about going to those that are lost and proclaiming the good news of Christ to them. 
So whosoever, whoever assumes an established relationship of God, now of those that come and draw near, we're told what they are to believe. So what is it that I am to believe? Well, notice what it says. It just summarizes uh, the, the essential doctrine. Whoever would draw near to God must believe, that is, have faith that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So the first statement is that God is. The word exist is not actually in the Greek language. It just simply states that God is. You must believe that God is. That God is is a verb. It's a to-be verb. That's how God reveals himself to Moses in the burning bush. I am. This is how Jesus reveals himself to say, I am. As he says, I am the light of the world. I am the bread of life. As Jesus uses those, those famous seven I am statements in the Gospel of John, he says, I am, that is a to-be verb. All that God has revealed of himself, we are to believe. You must, in fact, believe it. It's an absolute statement. Look at the text. You must believe this. You mean I'm not free to believe whatever I want to believe about God? No, you're not. You're not saved apart from a true knowledge of God. It tells us you must believe this. That is, we believe in the triune God. I, a number of years ago, I had made this statement in a sermon. It wasn't, wasn't here, so don't worry. I'm not thinking of anyone here. And they told me, you know, believing in the Trinity is actually just a matter of maturity. It's not essential to, the, to your salvation. That's heresy. We, we don't understand the gospel message that Paul says you must preach the gospel apart from a triune God. Are we not baptized in this formula? I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. The gospel teaches us what? That God the Father sent the Son if we could say, as Luther said, that John 3.16 is the gospel in, in, in a nutshell. I don't think he used the word nutshell. But if we could say, as he did of that, do we not even see there the very Trinitarian formula that, that is the gospel, that the Father sent the Son? That the Son lived a perfect life in the power of the Spirit as a man that was truly man, that He died and that He rose and that He ascended, and that the Spirit was poured out and given and is the seal of our redemption. Isn't that the gospel? We have to believe who God has revealed Himself to be, our triune God. But also, specifically, as the text says here, is that God is, that is, God is self existent. He is the all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present, eternal, and infinite God. Now, why do I have to believe this? Why, why do I have to believe these things? Well, let me just make one really crucial point. The pagans even believe it according to Romans 1.20. They suppress the truth of the invisible attributes of God, that they know how much more should you that are indwelt by the Holy Spirit believe that. 
Should the Christian not understand the very nature of God? Should not this be our great desire to better know God? That doesn't mean that you're able to articulate certain difficult doctrinal theological propositions, but it is to say we must believe who God is as He has revealed Himself. But there's a second thing here that we're told that we must believe, and that is that God rewards. What is that reward? Well, it's the, the, the plan of salvation. Now, while common light reveals the nature of God, and even, even demons believe in God, the qualification of rewards means that when God reveals himself as I am the self-existent one, I, by faith, know that I am dependent and my existence is coming from him. When God reveals himself as almighty and all-powerful, then I know that by faith it is he that has raised us from death to walk in a newness of life. You see, what we understand about God is then translates to what we understand of this God that says it gives rewards. God had revealed in the heart of Abel and in Enoch the promise through the preaching of Adam that God rewards with the blood of his son through faith, that he would send the seed of the woman to crush the head of the serpent. And they walked in hope of that, that God rewards. It is by faith that we lay hold of the promises. Let me ask you, do you have hope of reward this morning? If you have hope of eternal life, then you have hope of reward. If you have hope of the presence of Christ in eternity, that you will join the chorus of angels for unending time saying, Holy, holy, holy. As you will say, Behold the Lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world, then you have a hope of reward. You have hope of an imperishable inheritance, of a glorious body that will not break down, that will not fail, that will not get diseased, that will not hurt. Then you have hope of reward. And why do you have this hope? Well, notice what we, we see is that his infallible word teaches us of an inheritance. That is what Enoch looked forward to. That is what Abel looked forward to was a, a promise that they looked forward to something, that something better is awaiting us. And that is why we walk with the Lord now by faith, knowing that one day we will live by sight and no longer by faith. Now, does this mean he rewards us for our works? Does this mean that God then gives us rewards for what we do? No. Our reward for our works is death. The wages of sin is what? Death. Our reward is for the merits of Christ. The reward is Christ. And so we have to then balance this out with what Scripture says in terms of us walking. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor, your work, is not in vain. By faith, you work in the Lord. 
We are rewarded for the merits of Christ, not our own work, but because of Christ's work, we therefore work in the Lord, and it's not in vain. It's for those that seek him, the text of Scripture says. It is for those that seek him. And we have to, we have to qualify this word seek him or this phrase that seek him because Paul says this elsewhere in Scripture in Romans 3.11, no one seeks for God. That seems pretty clear what Paul's saying. No one seeks God. No one of their own free will. Our will must be changed. You know, I've heard over the years people describe someone that they, that, that they love, and, 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 and I've even said this myself, and we have to recognize what it, what it means scripturally. We'll hear something like this, well, they're, they're seeking God. Usually it means that a person is seeking some resolution to a problem, and God is just something they use to try to solve the problem, and when the problem is solved, guess what? They stop seeking God. And I've encountered that over the years as a pastor and just as a church member many times. Now, I never give up hope in that. I always have great hope that the Lord is working in that person, and as so should you. We shouldn't, we shouldn't live cynically and say, ah, once their problems are gone, because I've also seen the Lord work through people seeking something. But it does not mean necessarily what the Scripture says, no one seeks after God. Their heart must be changed. And so what is presupposed in Hebrews is those that seek God are those that are the whoever that God has called and that they have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. I just want to give you a little test to think through here on this. This is often revealed in preaching. And what do I mean by that? You know, very simply, this is often preaching is nothing more than a list of do's and don'ts. And why is preaching a, a, a list of do's and don'ts? Well, maybe because, because some have a false view of the gospel, so it's easy for them to give a congregation a list of do's and don'ts. Do this, don't do that. And you walk away, ah, satisfied, now I know what to do. In fact, preaching that presents Christ and exalts Christ and presents the full counsel of God is oftentimes described as difficult or, or boring and I need to be entertained and I need to be told what to do. I just want application. Just tell me what to do and I'll be okay. And so preachers will fall prey to this that, well, people just want to know what to do so I'll, I'll tell them what to do. But what did the text of Scripture say? It is impossible to please God apart from faith. You know, the, the, the problem with so much of modern preaching today isn't so much that it's superficial and shallow, though much of it is. It's because there's no presentation of the gospel, but there's a presentation of what you must do. That's not the gospel. Let me read you a story. I know you've heard it. 
But it will help illustrate this point. And behold, the man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, Well, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man said to him, All these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. You know, Jesus wasn't telling him, if you do this, you'll be saved. Jesus was revealing his heart to him that you cannot do anything to save yourself. That's the whole point of what Jesus says here. If this rich man would have sold his, pro his possessions as a means of gaining salvation, he would still be resting in himself. Jesus was revealing his heart. So when we say, just tell me what to do, or I just want to be told what to do, so did the young rich man. And he walked away sorrowful. Because it is impossible to please God apart from faith. Now this leads us to make two theological conclusions that apart from these, we will always have a faulty understanding of God. We will have a faulty understanding of ourselves. We will ultimately have a wrong gospel. And the first is this. We are born with the contagion of Adam's sin. And if you were in Sunday school this morning, Marcella did a wonderful job explaining this. But we are born in Adam's sin. Our minds are darkened from birth and we cannot illuminate them apart from the working of the Holy Spirit in regeneration. We are born into this world spiritually dead. There's not a, a spark of something in there that just has to be ignited. The scripture says, no, you're dead. Sadly, many Christians say the opposite. Well, there's just something in there that's still good and if we could appeal to just that little good thing, then that person will turn to Christ. This was also, by the way, what Cardinal Bellarmine said. Who's Cardinal Bellarmine? Cardinal Bellarmine was the chief opponent of the Reformers after Luther's death. He was born after Luther. And he says this, quote, Man can without faith and with special help and even without it perform some moral good if no temptation presses. It's amazing to me how much of the evangelical world has adopted Bellarmine's very thought and not even realized it. That there's some sort of spark in me when Scripture says, No, there's no spark. You're dead, darkened mind, children of wrath. That seems clear. This distorts the gospel. Because if there was some sort of spark in a person that was left, it's no longer a supernatural work of God, which we have no contribution, but rather elevates man. And if man is elevated, God then becomes less significant, doesn't he? 
We must come to grips with what God says. There is none righteous. That's why the text of Scripture says it is impossible to please God apart from faith. It means that there is none righteous, there are only unrighteous. And ignoring this reality will only contribute to the attitude of Cain. I can come and please God with my offering. And the final theological point that we have to make, and that is this, justification before a holy God is by faith alone. And faith is a grace, not a work. This is why Paul writes in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith and by faith alone. Let me ask you this morning, are you trying to please God by your works? Are you trying to please God by your religious practices? Or are you resting in Christ alone? And if you are resting in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone this morning, then you are pleasing in His sight because you are in the Beloved. And He says, I am well pleased with you. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You for the truth of the Gospel. We thank You how in the Gospel we are set free from our sin and from the darkened mind, Father, we thank you that by adoption we become children of yours, that Jesus becomes our elder brother. It is in him whom we trust.